The story of the first New Orleans Saints football team began 1,800 miles away from the team's home base in Metairie, Louisiana. On July 1st, 1967, the first team was greeted by surfers, the cool wind off the Pacific, and faces they had only seen on television, but not in person. Cal Western University in Point Loma, California, was the cauldron for the first training camp and the blend of players that made up the roster. Players and coaches were eager to make a first impression. Coach Tom Fears, a disciple of the legendary Vince Lombardi, was itching to put his stamp on the Saints franchise. Players like Jim Taylor, Billy Kilmer, Paul Horning were veterans eager to prove they still had juice left to squeeze. The location and temperatures were quite different than New Orleans. 53 years later, Saints owner John Meekham Jr. recognizes the blunder of the location. Well, it was an incredible place for a vacation. I'm not sure about a training camp. At the time, veteran quarterback out of Topeka, Kansas, Billy Kilmer loved camp on the coast. You know, I'd been in the league for uh, six years with the 49ers, and uh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Over the next four episodes of the Saints podcast, we'll be exploring notable Saints training camp locations since the team's birth on All Saints Day in 1966. Each location comes with stories and rosters of its own, and it's our goal to explain those stories for a better understanding of the growing pains that the team endured. The first episode will cover Cal Western in 1967, the first Saints training camp. Then we'll examine the 1974 training camp in Dodgertown, located in Vero Beach, Florida. Next, lacrosse from 1988 to 1999. And finally, one you may have heard the most about, Millsaps. The Saints were the 16th franchise of the league and would build from the ground up in New Orleans. John Meekham Jr., the son of a successful Texas oil man and a businessman himself, bought the Saints for $8.5 million at the age of 27. Meekham's first act was to bring in a head coach. That coach would be Tom Fears. Jeff Duncan, a sports writer who has covered the Saints for 20 years and who has written two books on the team, recalls the history. He'd been on the Falcons staff the year before, and they were expansion team the year before. You know, they're one year ahead of the Saints. So they thought that experience would prove beneficial to him coming on to a new expansion team. Once the head coach was selected, it was time to build the roster. Meekum and Fears went through an expansion draft on March 14th and 15th in 1967, after being awarded the team just five months prior. Meekum recalls just where he was at the age of 27 when selecting his first team. We didn't have the facilities in New Orleans to draft, basically, so we drafted the first time from the Rams' offices. Fears and Meekum went down a line of players that other teams in the league hadn't secured. In total, the Saints came out with 42 players who had spent anywhere from one to 10 years in the league. Headlining that draft was Paul Horning, a halfback out of Notre Dame who spent nine legendary years with the Green Bay Packers. Following the draft, the Saints side Horning's backfield mate, Jim Taylor. The duo were known by Packers fans as Thunder and Lightning. With their 42-man roster, it was time now for Meekum and Fears to find any additional talent. Billy Becknell, an 18-year-old recent high school grad, became a ball boy for the Saints in 1967 and worked his way up to the front office through 1981. Becknell recalled hundreds of people showing up for camp, even one man who only had one arm. In May of 67, the Saints had an open tryout down at 
old Tulane Stadium for anybody that thought they could play pro football. They had hundreds of people show up, and they gave them, assigned them numbers, much like a marathon race. And then, and then uh, the coaching staff put various groups through drills. Didn't amount to much, though. Becknell says fears only signed one player. The tryout process continued from Tulane Stadium to Cal Western, with Becknell being the person who picked up each prospect from the airport and then eventually dropped them back off when the team decided they didn't make the cut. They paid me $5 a day in room and board. <laughs> and a day was from 7 in the morning till sometimes midnight, you know, practicing twice a day, doing laundry and everything. And then one of my jobs was to drive back and forth to the San Diego airport. In those days, you did not have a roster cap a limit um, during training camp. And so we had over 100 players pretty much all the time in training camp. And I would drive back and forth to the airport several times a day because what, what they would do, besides the players they got from the other teams and people they signed as training camp started, um, they cut numerous people every day. I would take them to the airport and then uh, pick up some other players that were coming in. They claimed somebody almost every day off the waiver wire. <laughs> and some of those people would come in and, and then they'd leave the next day. You're asking yourself, why San Diego? Well, that answer really depends on who you ask. If you ask Meekum, he'll tell you one thing led to another following the draft in the Rams office, and they just decided California was the place to be. If you ask other sources, they'll tell you it's because Meekum wanted a place to put his large boat and other adult toys. Meekum, who was the youngest NFL team owner at that time, knows he could have done things a lot differently. I have most regrets for some mistakes that I made. Uh, I listened to maybe some people that I shouldn't have, but I didn't know at that time. And it wasn't easy, but it was a great experience. But it's an experience I had to pay for myself. Saints traveled out to Cal Western and began the process of getting a team ready for the season. The first eight to 10 days continued to be a tryout process for players. Bill Cody, a linebacker who was picked up by the Saints from the Detroit Lions, remembers the exhausting process of weeding out players. When we got to camp, there were still a lot of players, and of course, uh, the only way to, to know if they can play and, and make the team is to start scrimmaging, see how they perform, and uh, uh, boy, in the first week or so, it was a price to pay. Veterans like Billy Kilmer, Steve Stonebreaker, Bill Curry, Doug Atkins, Gary Quazzo said this was the toughest training camp they'd been to. Becknell remembers each detail of the camp down to what the players were drinking. There never seemed to be a time limit on practice. I mean, it could be two hours, could be two and a half hours. And those are the days before you even had Gatorade. You know, there was a drink called Take Five that tasted terrible we used to mix up. But unlike today, players weren't allowed to stop and take water breaks whenever they wanted. It was very intense. Plus, you had more hitting in those days in practice. Our drills were kind of brutal. You know, they had a drill called a nutcracker drill where a lot of teams did it, but you lay two big dummies down, say five feet apart, and you have a running back and a quarterback and a defensive lineman, and it's just a head-on collision trying to get past a defensive lineman. And that was a very, very brutal, uh, rough drill that they ran constantly. And so it's pretty much uh, practices in general – always almost involved contact, you know, so in addition to, to all the calisthenics um, and then we had weightlifting and then the, the uh, uh, drills that they ran, 
uh, and, and the length of practices. You know, it was just incredible uh, how long those went on sometimes. As the days drug on, patients seemed to get thinner, especially for the veteran Doug Atkins. Atkins was also known as the Mountain Man. He was a 37-year-old who stood at 6 feet 8 inches, 257 pounds, and played defensive end for the Saints. For comparison, LeBron James is that size. The Saints' own Cam Jordan is 4 inches shorter and 30 pounds heavier than Atkins at that time. Atkins was from Tennessee and had no qualms about pulling out his shotgun. Becknell remembers two stories vividly. We were in San Diego, and it was a three-story dorm, and we had the coaches downstairs. I was on the second floor with a few uh, veteran players, and then they had some rookies upstairs, and they were blaring music one night, and Doug had a pistol he always carried, and he just shot up into the ceiling. And you could hear all these guys running down the other end of the hallway, you know, and they they wouldn't talk. They, they went and talked to Coach Fears. And ultimately, you know, the playbooks had all these rules. You know, everything was on paper back then. And they added to the playbook, no guns allowed in training camp. We had a, we had a, we had a player, Elijah Nevitt, who was a defensive back. And um, in the dormitory at St. Paul's, there was a, a payphone. And somebody had ripped the the receiver, the part you talk into, whatever you call it, right. off the payphone. And I put it in my, in the front of my pants, you know, the cord. And when Nevitt walked in the lobby, I said, Nevitt, telephone call. <laughs> and he looks at me, Elijah goes, that's not even connected, man. Stop messing with me. And Doug walked in behind him. They, they Coming from getting their ankles taped for practice. And he goes, what's the problem, Billy? I said, well, Doug, uh, Elijah has a phone call. He won't take it. So Doug pulled the gun out. <laughs> and he, I don't know if it was loaded or not, but he pulled the gun out and he said, you get that phone, Elijah. So Nevitt comes over. Hello? Yeah. Uh-huh. Starts talking on the phone. Atkins was formidable on and off the field for the Saints and an anchor on defense. Doug played three seasons for the Saints, but other players the Saints acquired weren't so lucky. Due to the rules of the expansion draft and teams being able to lock certain players from being drafted, the Saints ended up with a lot of older players, some who never saw the field. Jim Taylor, a Louisiana native who played at LSU and went on to win a Super Bowl with the Packers, was a veteran fullback who was the thunder to Paul Horning's lightning. Horning never saw a down due to a pinched nerve in his neck, but Taylor had name recognition among Saints fans. He won the first ever Super Bowl and Saints fans expected productivity. Peter Finney Jr., a longtime fan of the Saints whose father received countless accolades for his sports writing in Louisiana, remembers the impact of the decision to get Jim Taylor. Jimmy Taylor was uh, a box office, and in, in those days you bring in a new franchise in, LSU star, great Green Bay Packer star, and it made a lot of you know, business sense, but uh, you know, uh, it didn't make a long-term football sense. Taylor went on to play 14 games with the Saints before hanging up his cleats. But the story of training camp was the quarterback battle between Billy Kilmer, the veteran out of San Francisco, and Gary Quazzo, the veteran out of Baltimore. Both players had good stints with their respective franchise, but now they were battling to make a name for themselves on the field of Cal Western. Well, I mean, everyone thought Gary Quazzo was going to be the guy. That's why the Saints traded for him. Uh, you know, they traded the number one overall pick in the draft, which would have been or could have been Bubba Smith, who was a Hall of Fame defensive lineman. 
but I think they wanted someone that had some experience at quarterback. And Quazo was viewed as a an up and coming uh, young quarterback in the league who was stuck behind Johnny Unitas at the time. Though Quazo was seen as the guy for the Saints, a weak offensive line created more competition at the position than people thought. The Saints offensive line was so poor that uh, Kilmer could move a little bit, even though he'd hurt his leg. He was much more mobile. And Quazo, who was a very, you know, good quarterback, but he was more of a pocket quarterback. And he didn't, he didn't really have a chance to, to really set up. Kilmer had some scrambling ability and he needed it to avoid the pass rush back then. While life in San Diego was fun while it lasted, camp in 70 degree climate didn't prepare them for football in Louisiana. The team practiced in Covington after a return from Cal Western. We played outside at Tulane Stadium initially. And, and so um, it, it's St. Paul's over here in Covington uh, was actually a boarding school um, it, it's a camp. It looks like a small college campus, and so w- the players stayed in the high school. The beds were the size of high school kids, you know. So uh, some of the players were too big for the beds, but you know we modified some of the rooms, and then we stayed there for two weeks. And it was terribly hot. There were mosquitoes, you know. So, having come from San Diego, a lot of players had trouble handling the heat. It took us two weeks or two days over there to even get acclimated to the climate. Kilmer, Saints quarterback for four seasons, says the saving grace of lasting through camp was a swimming pool. We could dive into it after the morning practice. And then after the afternoon practice, we all found the beer hall and we helped us there to cool down. With a full roster and plenty to prove, the Saints began preseason games. After their first loss at the beginning of August to the Los Angeles Rams, the Saints went on to win five games in a row in the preseason, going five and one. Peter Finney Jr., a sports writer like his father, remembers attending the games at the age of 11. I just remember going and just remembering how many, just seeing how many people there were. And uh, even though, I mean, today you think about it, they're not even playing the starters right now. They played, the starters played a lot. It it was incredible. It was always exciting because really, even though the team struggled, it, it was uh, uh, it, the stadium was pretty much filled. You got faith, and you got the you got football uh, in this area, and it really is true. Finney said season tickets were about fifteen dollars where he and his family were sitting, and rain or shine, people would come out to watch Saints football. In the first Saints regular season game against the Rams, rookie John Gilliam prayed to God the ball wouldn't come to him on a kickoff return, but as fate would have it. The ball came to him, and the rest is history. Gilliam ran the ball back 94 yards for a touchdown and won the hearts of Saints fans forever. Yeah, I thought the stands were going to come right down. 83,000 fans in the stands at Tulane Stadium for their first game against the Rams. The Saints lost their first game despite an explosive start and finished the regular season 3-11. Following their final regular season game against the Washington Redskins, which the Saints had won, Kilmer remembers fans greeting them at the airport, despite the unsuccessful season. When we flew back in, there was about 4,000 people at uh, the airport. You thought we'd won the Super Bowl. We walk off the plane and they're clapping and everything. You thought, you know, that was the, you know, the fans, boy, they, they just loved us. Tradition that's carried through to today in 2020. Fans from near and far gather around at the airport at all hours of the day and night to greet the black and gold, win or loss. 
The grit and won't back down attitude of the Saints carried over year after year. Meekum's constant desire to win had him doing whatever it took for his team to have success, which eventually led them to a location that had bred success. Dodger Town. <laughs>